This is the Craig Rochelle Leadership Podcast. Hey, it's awesome to have you with us for a bonus episode of the Craig Rochelle Leadership Podcast. Why do I say bonus episode? If you're new with us, we release a brand new leadership teaching on the first Thursday of every single month. But we've had so many great questions come in from all over the world that I decided to release an additional episode this month just to deal with your questions. If you do have questions, you can email me anytime at leadershipatlife.church. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast and receive the show notes, you can go to life.church slash leadership podcast, subscribe, and then we'll email you a summary of all of the notes every single episode, and that way you can go over those with your team. I just wanna say um, sincerely, man, thank you, thank you, thank you to those of you that are sharing the word on social media. It is a real gift to me when you invite others to be a part of our leadership community. Also, thank you for rating or reviewing and subscribing. That helps make the podcast more visible. And I'm gonna work hard to bring you high quality content in a short period of time because your time is valuable. You spreading the word is a gift to me. In this bonus episode, I might be a little more laid back instead of rushing through it. Uh, we got a lot of content, so this may be a bit longer than normal. We're just kind of going to relax and see how it goes. Uh, let's dive into a question. This one's kind of fun. Tim asked this question. Would you have hired any of Jesus's disciples? Why or why not? Great question. Would you have hired any of Jesus's disciples? My answer is knowing what I know now, I would have hired 11 of them. I would have clearly passed on Judas. If you ever make a bad hire, and I sometimes have, I always like to tell myself, even Jesus had a Judas. I like this question, Tim, because I think we can actually learn a lot from those that Jesus chose and those that he didn't choose to be on his team. You don't have to be a Christian to learn from his selection process. And so I wanna talk about it today, kind of from a creative viewpoint. Uh, some thoughts about who Jesus hired. Number one, Jesus chose people that others overlooked. He chose people that others overlooked. In fact, you need to remember that you'll often find great um, and talented people that others overlook. If you're not just looking at what everyone else is looking at, you can see things in people, qualities that are often hidden or not quite as obvious. You can find greatness in people that others overlook. Number two, Jesus passed on those trained by the traditional system. Think about this. Um, when he recruited his disciples, he didn't invite a, a single scribe, a Sadducee, a Pharisee, um, no one from the organized religious tradition to be a part of his inner circle of 12. This implies, and I can't totally know his motives, but it implies that perhaps he believed that he could train them better than the traditional path. This is not always the case. In your organizations, sometimes you're gonna need technically and traditionally changed, uh, trained people but sometimes you might wanna go a non-traditional path. For example, I'm a pastor who leads an organization with over 600 paid employees, um, currently in 29 different locations in nine different states. You, even if you don't know a lot about churches, you would probably say that's not a traditional church model. That's not like most churches in the community. It's a non-traditional model. So in our system, honestly, it's rare that a traditionally trained pastor thrives in our model. Um, it's not that traditionally 
training pastors is bad or wrong, it's just traditional. Uh, for example, I have a, a degree called a Master's of Divinity that's a three-year degree that specially specializes in training pastors. Uh, I am not against higher education, I'm completely for higher education. But in our context, to be real honest, seminary grads have struggled more than those who are not seminary grads. And in our context, it's oftentimes uh, those who are spiritually minded business leaders end up doing better transitioning onto our staff than those who have been traditionally trained. This is not true for all churches, it's simply true for us. If you're leading something that's new, something's different, something creative, something innovative, you might be wise to look in non-traditional places to find talent. Uh, back to Jesus and his team. Uh, while many people are shocked by his choices, he obviously saw qualities that he liked that others undervalued. When you think about it, the disciples, they often get a bad rap. They're often criticized, but these guys were not idiots. Uh, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, they were business owners. They ran a fishing business, and their business experience provided tremendous value that could help move the mission forward. Matthew was a tax collector that was not a popular job, but my goodness gracious, this guy got valuable experience uh, working with people, dealing with uh, brutal taskmasters above him, and then um, getting money out of people as a tax collector. It was valuable business experience. Simon was known as Simon the Zealot. He was either a politician or a revolutionary. This guy had skills from that that could be valuable. And then James and John were called Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder. I'm not sure why nobody is, but that's just cool, okay? I just have a feeling these guys could bring the heat if they had to bring the heat. Jesus saw qualities in these leaders that other people undervalued. He chose those others overlooked. He passed on those trained by the traditional system. Number three, he had a very intentional onboarding and training process. I know theologians wouldn't call it that, but from a leadership perspective, that's what I would say. For three years, he intentionally and consistently invested in his team. He was involved in the details of their lives. What did he do? He would teach them. He would show them how he would do it. He would give them feedback. He would empower them. It was a very intentional onboarding and training process. Number four, he delegated full authority for them to carry on his vision and mission. That's what he did. After three years of training, he essentially said, now here's your assignment. Go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's what Jesus did. He said, here's what I want you to do. Here's where I want you to do it. But Jesus did not tell them how they were to do it. He empowered them to fulfill his mission. That's why, Tim, I think it's a great question. What can we learn about how Jesus recruited people? Thank you for your question. Let's deal with another one. Uh, this is Dylan. Dylan asks, when do you know it's time to fire an employee? And when you do know, how do you do it in a way that shows genuine care for that person? I bet we were asked some version of this question 40 different times. How do we know when it's right to fire someone? How do we do it in a way that is caring? This is important. Let's start with the first part. Um, when do you know it's time to fire an employee? Let me just tell you this. More often than not, most of us fire later than we should. Let me say it again. More often than not, most of us fire later than we should. Uh, it's a rare leader 
that has a hot temper and fires too quickly. There are some that do it, but 98 times out of 100, we fire too slow rather than too quickly. The general rule is most of us wait longer than we should. Why are we so slow to remove a troubled team member? There are some reasons that just because we have a heart, we care. Uh, we care about people, we don't want them to lose their job. We like them and we wanna give them a chance and another chance and another chance and another chance to improve. Um, we hope or maybe we believe that we can save them as a valuable part of our team. Those are all good reasons because we have a heart. There are other reasons that really show a weakness on our part and that is sometimes we're just afraid to have the difficult conversation. We don't wanna do that because it makes us so nervous. Or we're lying to ourselves that it's not that bad and yet the rest of our team often knows how bad it is and so we're losing credibility when we don't deal with the situation. Ultimately, we're avoiding conflict and we're neglecting our role as a leader to help people succeed or to move them out of the way so they can thrive somewhere else and we can move the organization forward. Now, when do we know it's the right time? Let's deal with this. Uh, if an employee has a serious breach of integrity or they're always divisive or they're not tr trustworthy or something that falls in that category, the time is now. There's sometimes it should just be obvious to you, this person cannot be trusted they're always harsh and critical, they lack integrity, the time is now. If it's a performance issue and they still have character and there are other good qualities, that's when it becomes a little more gray. Uh, if it's a performance issue that could possibly improve, we're gonna approach it in a different way and I'm gonna give you four thoughts about it. Number one, we wanna tell them there is a problem. And, and I cannot be any more clear, you have to do this directly. We feel like oftentimes, you know, we're gonna come in and like shoot the breeze, like, hey, how's it going? How's your family? And well, kinda, you know, no, you just sit, you sit down and say, hey, we need to, you need to understand there's a problem in your performance. And that is the loving thing to do is to be very direct, very clear, lead with that. You're setting the tone that you care, tell them there's a problem. Number two, you wanna define clearly what needs to change. There's something about their performance or their behavior or their attitude or something that needs to change and you need to be crystal clear about what that is. If possible, you want their change to be measurable. In other words, it's not always possible. For example, if they've got a bad attitude, you can't say, I need your attitude to improve by 35%. We can't measure that. But if they're recruiting volunteers, you might need to say, we need to have 35% more volunteers serving 90 days from now, that is measurable. As often as you can, you want uh, what you want them to do to be measurable. Um, whenever possible, you wanna give them a goal that is specific, clear, and measurable so they're gonna know exactly what you expect out of them. As you're defining what needs to change, what you want them to do at some point is you're gonna want them to repeat it back to you and don't skip this. You wanna make sure they're able to verbalize specifically what's in your heart and in your mind so they are 100% clear what they need to do to win the right to stay in the role. Now, uh, I would recommend as often as appropriate to document this in writing. If you're having this kind of conversation, it's not only wise from a legal perspective, but it brings weight and accountability to the discussion. If you say, you know, here's what I'm asking you to do by such and such period of time, and you write it down, even have them sign it, and it, you know, if you don't, then you don't get to stay here. That may seem over, over formal, and it may be in some circumstances, but oftentimes it's the wise thing to do from a legal perspective and also from a, oh my goodness, there's accountability to this process and we're documenting it. 
Um, and so generally speaking, not always, but oftentimes you're going to want to do that. The third thing you're going to want to do is give them the tools to improve and a deadline to hit. The tools to improve and a deadline to hit. In other words, you're going to give them a mentor to help them improve or a book to read or a conference to go to or weekly coaching meetings or a podcast to listen to or whatever. And then you're going to give them a deadline to hit. I recommend the deadline be no more than 90 days. We're not giving them a year or six months. We need to see quick improvement. Some people, it might be 60 days. We don't want the window to be too short where they don't have a chance. We don't want to be too long where it drags on. Probably 60 to 90 days, we need to see improvement in order for you to stay here. I want to see you succeed. Here's what you need to do. Here's specifically what needs to happen by when. Then in the process, let's say it's a 90-day process, you're going to want to help them know where they stand throughout the whole process. At the end of 90 days, you don't want them coming in and saying, well, congratulations, you made it, or, well, sorry, you didn't make it. You want them to know through the process with consistent, regular meetings where they stand so at the end of the 90-day or whatever the window is, it's going to be real clear to them. They're walking into the meeting already knowing there's a win or the conversation's relatively easy. We gave it our best shot. I'm sorry you didn't make it, but we're going to need to make a change. So we're going to be clear through the whole process. And then number four, if they make the improvements, you celebrate. If they don't, you make the change. We kind of covered that. Uh, you asked about showing care. And what I hope you'll understand is this process is showing care. This is not unloving. This is the most loving thing you can do by clearly communicating where they stand, giving them the tools to succeed, the time, the clear expectations, helping them along the way. And then at the end of this process, if they made it, man, we all won and it's, let's move forward together. If they didn't make it, it's going to become clear to you. It should be clear to them. This is the right way to show care. Again, I've said this before. If you've got a troubled player, everyone else knows it. If you as a leader do not deal with the problem, eventually over time, that troubled player is no longer the problem. You have now become the problem. You're the leader. You're in the role. It's your role to help them get to the point uh, where they're able to play, or it's your role to help remove them so they can succeed somewhere else and your organization can move forward. That is your role. It's not easy, but that's why you are the leader. Okay. Uh, Mark asked this. Mark said, I was wondering how people that are not currently in natural positions of leadership, and then he said it like a manager, can work on developing leadership skills. So if someone doesn't have the role or a title of a leader, how do we get better? How do we work on developing our leadership skills? Mark, thanks for that question. Um, we get a lot of questions kind of in this vein. Um, and the challenge, I think, is that many people think that position equals leadership. Position equals leadership. This is simply not true. This is a myth, and it's nowhere close to true about leaders. So many people, I believe, are waiting to have a title before they lead or they wrongly believe they cannot be a leader. This is a gross misunderstanding of leadership. What is leadership? Someone once said, leadership is influence. That's a decent definition of leadership. It's influence. What I hope you'll understand is this. You don't need a title or a position to lead. You simply need to care about people and your mission. If you care about people, you can lead up, you can lead laterally, you can lead down. If you care about people, you don't need a title in order to lead. Many people say, well, I'm not a leader. No, 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 you are. If you're a parent, you should be leading your children. Um, if you're in a sorority, you can influence your sisters. 
If you're in a new job, you can have upward influence and influence your managers, influence your boss, you're a leader. Do not wait for permission to see yourself as a leader. Start leading now. Um, Adora asked this question. I have a team member that I've been uh, coaching through a rough patch at work. I've had to address issues such as not meeting deadlines, being late to meetings, not being engaged in the culture at work. After our discussion, Adora said, I've noticed them really stepping up to the plate and making progress toward two goals that we set in the last meeting about three weeks ago. Here's a question. Should I congratulate them on making progress or is it too early? Should I reward someone that's improving or would that um, not help the situation? So let me just say this, Adora, great work. Congratulations. You took a team member that was struggling, you created some specific goals and you moved that team uh, member forward. You addressed it head on. Your team member is improving. Congratulations. That is fantastic leadership on your part, Adora. Now, if you were standing by me right now, Adora, you can tell I'm getting excited. I'd high five you because what you did was fantastic. Then I would encourage you to stay on it. I would say, hey, let's make sure their early wins are translated into long-term wins. You're doing great. Then, if we're standing side by side after our exchange, I would lean in and whisper playfully, hey, Adora, did I congratulate you too early? Did I, did, I, did, I, did I celebrate your win too early? And hopefully you'd smile and say, no, you didn't. What was my desire? My goal was to give you a verbal reward to celebrate your win because you had a win and what do we do? We celebrate wins. What do we know? We know what is rewarded is repeated. What is rewarded is repeated. So I would suggest with your team member that you immediately celebrate the win because your team member is winning. Now, you're gonna do it in a way that doesn't say you've arrived, you know, take, the, take your foot off the pedal. What you're gonna do is say you've made real progress and what you want your team member to recognize is that you noticed. I, I noticed your improvement and I'm celebrating it with you. So the answer is you absolutely wanna acknowledge the progress and encourage them to keep it up. Then the minute you see it slide, you call it to attention. You call it to attention immediately, but you reward what you wanna see more of and you address what you don't wanna see. Again, Dora, great job, keep it up, okay? Walter uh, asked this, Walter said, I oversee, a teen, uh, I oversee a teen of volunteers, a leadership group within the YMCA. While listening to an old podcast, I heard you say, we have to lead volunteers to feel like they're owners, not like volunteers. Then you said, I love the idea of creating ownership for my teams. What are some tangible ways to begin practicing this leadership principle? Great question. How do we help volunteers own it? Uh, language matters. I like to say this, we don't just recruit volunteers, we release leaders because volunteers do good things, but leaders change the world. Language matters. Uh, Walter, I love that you're working with teenagers and investing to develop them to become better leaders, and I love that you want to give them ownership. Um, I want to give you a few statements that might be memorable and helpful. This is not a complete explanation, but it's a starting point for the discussion if we want to create ownership. Uh, when you want to create ownership in your team or your volunteers, define the what, explain the why, let them choose the how. Let me say it again. Define the what, explain the why, let them choose the how. Let's talk about it. 
giving ownership doesn't mean we're giving the vision or the mission away. You define what you're about. You define what you want to accomplish. That's the what. The why adds value to it. You also wanna give them the why. What typically doesn't inspire? The why behind what we do is what inspires. People will work for a what, but they'll give their life for a why. So you set the tone, the what gives direction, the why creates passion, and then as often as possible, and it's not always possible, but as often as is possible, you're gonna let them choose the how. Now, this is where it's gonna get difficult for you, Walter, because as a leader, the how they choose will often be different than the how that you would choose. You're gonna see a different way to get to the end result. They're gonna see maybe an idea that you never thought of or one that you don't even like as much. And this is where you have to have a little bit of grace to let them do things in a way that would be different than you. Over time, they might actually do it way better than the idea that you had in your mind. So when they know the what and they understand the why and they help create the how, they're going to own the overall vision. Let's think of it this way. What do workers do? Workers work. Doers do. Owners own. We wanna help people own the how, and that way they'll think more like owners. Um, this is your vision, but you're giving them freedom to help bring about the vision. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna work toward delegating authority, not just work. There's a difference. Work is you do what I say. Authority is here's what I want, but you determine how to get there. And this is the big key. We're not just delegating tasks, we're delegating authority. If you delegate something to do, your teenagers will become doers. If you delegate something to decide, they will become owners. We're not just delegating work, we're delegating authority. The bottom line is we're gonna have to give them some freedom. The quickest way to kill ownership is to micromanage. Some of you, you're listening right now, you have a manager, a supervisor, a leader who micromanages you, and it's hard for you to continue to care because they're micromanaging. If you wanna empower someone else to own, you cannot micromanage, you have to give them some freedom. Micromanaging is the fastest way to kill ownership. As they're owning, give them feedback along the way. So you're not just gonna say, here's the assignment and go do it and I'm not, I'm not watching. No, you're watching, you're coaching, you're giving them feedback. And when they do something great, you celebrate it like crazy because what is rewarded is repeated. All right, Eric asked this question. I'm wondering if you have any best ways to manage up, meaning helping your boss make decisions. I appreciate the podcast on feedback. Those certainly help. Um, have you ever been in a place where you're uh, almost leading your boss? Eric, you are one of literally dozens and dozens of people who asked a similar question. Uh, again, uh, if you would like more information from this podcast, Google Craig Groeschel Leadership Podcast, Leading Up, Leading Up. There's a full teaching on this. Um, there's two podcasts on this, but let me just give you some quick thoughts and high point summaries. The biggest myth about leadership is that you have to be in charge in order to lead. There's a massive difference between what for years people called uh, positional power and what today we would call personal power. Positional power is the title or the position. Personal power is based on what a group of people think. P 
Positional power today is not what it used to be. Um, personal power matters so much more. If you want influence, care about people, love people, help them, them improve, I always love to say that people will follow a leader with a heart faster than a leader with a title. Now, leading up is not easy. It takes some finesse, it takes some skill, because if you do it in the wrong way, you'll be perceived as critical, you'll be received, uh, perceived as a troublemaker or someone who is rebellious. In, in our teaching, I had five things that matter when leading up. Honor matters. You wanna make sure that in your heart, you truly honor your leader. If you have a critical spirit all the time about your leader, your leader's gonna sense it, and you cannot effectively lead those you do not honor. Honor publicly results in influence privately. Timing matters. You're gonna to wanna to look at the rhythm of your leader's week. In other words, for me, I, I work all weekend long. Mondays are, are emotionally challenging and physically challenging days for me because I'm recovering. If a team member comes in and gives me a long idea of things to change or improve on Monday, I'm not gonna be nearly as receptive as I am gonna be on Thursday once I'm more refreshed and the heavy part of my week load is behind me. So you're gonna to wanna to look at the timing of when you approach someone. When you come in, you're gonna to wanna to be very, very prepared. You may wanna have something in writing that shows you've been organized, you've been thinking. You wanna make every moment count. You don't wanna waste your leader's time. You wanna add value to your leader, timing matters. Number three, motives matter. When you approach your leader, you wanna approach with the attitude to serve. Examine your motives. If you honestly think you're smarter, um, rather than you're trying to add value, your leader's gonna smell that. You, what you wanna do is you wanna, you wanna approach your leader with a heart to serve and make the organization better. Um, you don't just point out problems, you bring solutions. Number four, initiative matters. If you wanna gain influence with your boss or your supervisor, lighten your leader's load. Do something that adds value to or takes burdens off of your leader. Um, you don't come to your leader and say, hey boss, you know, um, I don't have enough to do, and so um, if there's anything I can help you with, yeah, uh, give me what I can do. What you've just done there is you've undervalued your own leadership, and you've given your boss or supervisor something extra to do, something to come up with, for them to come up with for you to do. You don't wanna do that. You wanna intuitively find ways to take the load off of your leader. I always say that the best team members don't need to be told what to do because they intuitively find important things to do. If you're always adding value to your leader or taking burdens off of, you're gonna have extra credibility with your leader. Um, I also like to say this, if you're willing to do what others won't do, you will earn influence that others don't have. If you find yourself serving, adding value, removing burdens, if you'll do what others won't do, you'll have influence that others don't have. Finally, number five, truth matters. If you're always a yes person, you're gonna lose credibility with your leader. Truth always trumps flattery. You have to tell the truth, but you wanna do it in a loving way. Now, if you are a leader of an organization right now, what I just wanna to say to you is, is I get this question over and over and over and over again, over and over and over again. Everywhere we go, we get this question, how do I influence my boss? What that tells me as a leader, I have to work incredibly hard to tap into the wisdom of my team because I never want team members to have great ideas and yet not tap into that wisdom. As a leader, you don't want you don't you don't ever want your team to feel like you're not listening because no organization will ever be what it could be without upward and honest communication. Let me say it again, leaders, recognize this. Your team, they are valuable. If they're not 
find someone who is. No organization will ever be what it could be without honest upward communication. Let's deal with another question. Uh, Adam asked this, in the context of creating content, preaching, teaching, podcast, and leading your team, et cetera, do you have a process for creating that content? Do you have a process? And if so, what does your process look like? Adam, great question. Let me answer it. I'm going to broaden it a little bit and just talk really about content creation because not everyone's going to teach like I do in my role, but most everyone will create content. You're going to write letters. You're going to cast vision. You're going to inspire and instruct at meetings or um, so on. So I'll do my best to hit the high points. First of all, we need to understand that we're never just speaking. We're always leading. As leaders, we're never just blah, 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 blah. We're never just trying to communicate content. What we're trying to do is we're trying to lead people toward a direction, toward an action, toward a destination. We're not just speaking, we're leading. Uh, there's three questions that we want to be able to answer before we communicate anything. First of all, what do I want the people to know? What do I want them to feel? What do I want them to do? What do I want them to know, feel, and do? We wanna start with the know. We wanna be able to clearly define what specifically we want to communicate. For me, when I'm um, communicating a weekend message, I try to work hard to be able to capture the essence or the big truth, the big idea in one sentence. If I can't narrow it down to one sentence, then it's not yet clear in me. That one sentence, everything should point to that big one sentence. Uh, for the leadership podcast, what I wanna do is I wanna, I wanna define a narrow topic. Broad is difficult to communicate. The, the more narrow you get, the better and the more strategic the communication can be. So what do I want them to know? Second thing is what do I want them to feel? Why is this so important? Facts don't move people to action. Emotions move people to action. So we want them to feel something when, they, um, when we communicate with them. Then finally, what do we want them to do? What is the action that you hope your communication creates? What do you want them to do? If you don't have a clear do, you're not clear yet on your content creation. Um, remember, the more things you want someone to do, the less likely they are to do them. If I gave you an assignment, say, here's the nine things I want you to do, you, chances are you're not gonna do any of them. It's best to have one big clear ask. If we ask for one thing, we're more likely to get one thing and if we ask for five things, we're less likely to get one thing at all. Now, creating content, let me just tell you, it is exhausting. It is exhausting. It takes extraordinary concentration to create high quality, concise, and clear content. So here's some behind the scene thoughts. You're gonna wanna create the right environment, and that means the right time of the day when you're most creative, the right kind of tools. You, wanna, you want everything to be in an environment that moves you toward that creativity. For me, I'm gonna tell you my philosophy, I like to work in about four hour windows. If I only have two hours, I don't have enough time to get immersed in the content. I can't do it for six hours, that's too much. So I like a four hour window. I understand many of you will never get a four hour window, but you don't have the volume of content to create that I do. And so you're, you're gonna wanna find out your rhythms, what's the right window time. For me, Earlier is better. I'm more creative early in the morning. And so I wanna create the right environment. Like literally it's down to, I've got a couple of drinks that I like to have nearby. I like to have my snacks. I listen to ambient music, music that has kind of a rhythm behind it, but no words. And that helps keep me focused. Uh, people don't interrupt me during that time. It's like literally I'm creating my little creative cave and you'll wanna do your own version of that. 
I'm gonna describe the process as simply as I can, and I'm gonna put it in six points. Uh, first thing is this, I wanna research, absorb, and capture ideas. If I'm doing a leadership podcast, I'm gonna spend a couple hours researching, looking at different teaching, Googling stuff, reading books, listening to podcasts, and jotting down notes. Uh, if I'm gonna read an article, literally I'll skim it, and can I can probably read eight or 10 articles in a five, six minute period where I'm just capturing little ideas and putting them down. Then I'm gonna start organizing. Once I've got a lot of content, I'm gonna start organizing, seeing what common um, ingredients we have and start trying to get it organized. Then what I'm gonna do is start illustrating for interest. Once I have some kind of workable outline, I'm gonna try to create interest to keep people engaged. It might be a funny story if I'm doing a weekend message or it might be kind of a tweetable quote that you're gonna to wanna to write down while I'm um, teaching a leadership podcast. The number four, I'm gonna edit down. This is crucial. Less is more, less is more, less is more. We get emotionally attached to content that we discover and we like, and I'm gonna edit down, edit down, edit down, edit down. I bring in other people often to help me edit down. I'll ask them, what do I like that you don't care about? And oftentimes you're like, I don't really care about this. Like, oh, but I love that so much. But I really try to listen to them because as communicators, we often communicate too much. Too much loses people, edit down, edit down. Number five, I let it sit. The best communication I'm gonna do is not something that I create in one sitting. It's actually gonna be something that often has several weeks of time to it. And then number six, I'm gonna revisit it on a fresh day after I've slept a couple of times. What happens is my antennas are often up during those times and I find a couple of other ideas I come in and look at it on a fresh day, and suddenly I have great clarity to, clarity to it. That's what my process looks like. Uh, for one podcast, sometimes people say, you know, does this just come out of you naturally? Thank you for that compliment. No, it does not. I work a long time on these. I might spend three different four-hour blocks, literally creating a 20-minute um, teaching for the podcast. You have to work longer to teach high quality, shorter, and that's, I'll spend a lot of time on it. It takes a lot of work to make content simple and easy to digest. Uh, let's deal with one more question. This comes from Chris. Um, Chris says this, working out has become a big thing in my life because it's the only way I can turn off work before I head home to be a husband and a dad. I understand that. He says, I sometimes feel there's an expectation of me as a leader to stay later. I understand that too. He says, nobody puts this on me I believe I'm fighting a mentality that I should be first one in and last to leave the office. Chris, I totally get this. I felt this way for years, and what I want to do is try to set you free. You absolutely want to set the standard for engagement in your organization. In other words, you want people to know you care, you work hard, you get results, period. But you know this as a leader that long hours does not necessarily guarantee results. In fact, sometimes too many hours actually diminish results because you lose productivity. The only thing that long hours guarantee is that you're gonna be exhausted. If you're exhausted and you're setting an example of someone who's not leading appropriately or healthily, then your team's gonna reflect that and before long, you're gonna have a bunch of worn out people trying to prove their value by their long hours instead of actually create material, content, or products that change lives or move your organization forward. So we need to understand this, that lazy leaders don't build thriving organizations. Lazy leaders do not build thriving organizations, but 
burned out leaders don't build thriving organizations either. If you care, and I know you do, or you wouldn't be asking this question, you will be engaged. Your team is going to sense it. They're going to feel it. You don't have to show long hours for your team to know that you're engaged. I'm one of the first ones to leave the office every single day, and a lot of people know that. But honestly, I don't think there's anybody that's gonna question my work ethic, and there are very few people who would ever think that I'm not putting in as much or more than the vast majority of people on the team because they know I'm engaged, they know that I care. So more than modeling grueling hours, what you wanna do is you wanna model sustainable and engaged leadership. If you're healthy, it's more likely that your team's gonna be healthy, and healthy people create healthy organizations. Now, on the first Thursday of next month, we're gonna continue our teaching on dealing with critics. All critics are not created equal. We're gonna learn how we respond. You are gonna be criticized when you lead strong. The higher you rise in leadership, the more critics you're gonna have. I hope that you have a lot of critics that'll often be a reflection of you doing a lot in this world. We don't worry when we're criticized, we often worry when we're not. I wanna say thank you for your questions. If you have others, email me at leadershipatlife.church. If this is helpful, we may do more Q&As in the future. You can let us know if it is helpful. Please share it on social media. You can always rate and review um, the content, which helps make it more visible. Thank you for being a part of our leadership community. Whatever you do as a leader, be yourself. Bring you, because people would rather follow a leader who's always real than one who's always right. Thank you for joining the Craig Rochelle Leadership Podcast. A new episode comes out each month, so make sure that you subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app so that it comes straight to your device on Thursday, June 7th. In the meantime, you can check out Craig's five favorite episodes of this podcast by going to life.church slash favorite five. We'll send you show notes and a guide so that you guys can discuss insights and concepts of every episode with your team. If you're enjoying this show, make sure that you subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes so that others can learn from it as well. Until next time, we'll see you at the Craig Rochelle Leadership Podcast.